I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Author, lecturer, but most of all, psychonaut, Daniel Pinchbeck is one of the most important voices in the new psychedelic revolution. Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind may be making the most noise, but Pinchbeck beat Pollan to the punch by almost 20 years with Breaking Open the Head, an account of his foray into the Amazon to explore psychedelic plants and consciousness. His book got the attention of Sting, Russell Brand, and Ellen Page, among others, who saw the value of his work and wanted to spread the word. His latest book, When Plants Dream, Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism, and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance, couldn't be more timely. Whether it's microdosing or purging your guts out under the influence, Pinchbeck finds hope that the psychedelic experience will be more than a self-help product in the wellness toolbox. For him, it is the key to saving the world from its own destructiveness, the ultimate benefit being a greater connection between man and nature as a way to stop the madness and the cratering of our environment. So as cannabis advances as a wonder drug, Johns Hopkins University launches a center for psychedelic research. Ayahuasca is all the rage. Ketamine and MDMA are being studied as cures for depression and alcoholism. It seems like a good time to sit with Daniel Pinchbeck. After all, he wrote the book. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Light Culture. My guest today is Daniel Pinchbeck. It's hard to describe him exactly. He's a writer. He's a lecturer. Psychonaut? Is that a word that people still use, Daniel? I mean, they, they use Sounds that. familiar to you? No. He's been exploring the outer dimensions of consciousness, taking on a wide range of topics from 2012 Quetzalcoatl, shamanism, occult control systems, UFOs, aliens, other dimensions. Uh, tonight, I believe, you're doing a talk. Is that correct? I actually got postponed. <laughs> okay, got postponed. Yeah. But uh, the subject was... Uh, uh, a new book uh, that I've written with a young woman anthropologist called When Plants Dream, uh, which is about ayahuasca, looking at the uh, phenomenon of ayahuasca, how everything we know about it, really, its origins, its history, how different tribes used it, uh, how it made its way into the modern world, and the healing benefits and the legal aspects of it, et cetera, et cetera. And the part of the subtitle of that is the Golden Psychedelic, uh, the Global Psychedelic Renaissance. Do you believe that to be true, that there is a psychedelic renaissance? I know you travel around Don't, quite a I bit. mean, I, haven't you noticed? I mean, I mean, <laughs> well, my, 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 my first book uh, was on psychedelic shamanism, Breaking Open the Head, and that came out in 2002. And in the, I was in the 90s in New York. I think we bounced around some of the same clubs mm -hmm. and parties. And basically, psychedelics were considered totally trivial or stupid. Nobody really, you know, took them seriously. But, um, you know, I don't know, you know, my book and a few other books, I think, helped start like a cultural 
reconsideration of psychedelics. And now we have like Michael Pollan just wrote this book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, which is a mega bestseller. And yeah, there's um, you know a lot, a lot of efforts going on. Um, MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is working on legalizing uh, MDMA for treating uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mushrooms, psilocybin just got legalized or decriminalized in um, Oakland and uh, Denver. And uh, a lot, you know, a lot of study uh, is going on that wasn't really allowed uh, since the 60s in the last decade. Yes, you mentioned the 60s. I was just thinking of that as well. So what happened? I mean, the 60s were partly a psychedelic revolution, as a cultural revolution, and that's when people were experimenting, and it became a very even recreational to some extent. And then something happened. Well, psychedelics were made illegal. <laughs> Is that the main thing? Weren't yeah, they, was, illegal? they, they were uh, made Schedule One drugs in 1970, but they started legislating on them in the, like the late 60s. 66. It didn't stop people from smoking pot, let's say, which is also Schedule One. That's a good point. Uh, well, people, you know, continued to do psychedelics, but they became much less popular. I mean, I think you know, also the, the media made a lot of stuff around like acid casualties, and um, I mean, as I as I look at in in the book, there wasn't a lot of understanding of psychedelics at that time. And they are very powerful instruments for changing your consciousness. So you know, even somebody like John Lennon uh, said in the 70s that he kind of overdid LSD and like lost his ego for like, it took him like a decade to get it back together. So yeah, so there were, there were other reasons. It's almost like we weren't quite ready for psychedelics at that time on like, like a mass cultural level. And do you think we're ready now? I mean, is this something you're advocating that it become more of a mass cultural, like, I don't know, recreational maybe isn't the best word since it's, it's does lots of much more powerful than cannabis on the face of it. So it'll be difficult to just do it casually. So how, what's the line there? What's the balance between, you know, people enjoying themselves, tripping, having fun, listening to music, you sure. know? Sure. Well, I mean, do I advocate it? I mean, that's, I guess I kind of do in that, um, I feel that if we look at our society at this point, you know, we're, we're in a massive clusterfuck where, you know, really we're ruining our environment uh, to the point where if you read like a lot of like the reports, even like the recent like, military report, like they're talking about really like massive social unrest and ecological catastrophe in the next like 10 to 20 years. And, um, you know, we have a power structure which has led to kind of sociopathic people to kind of run the world in a way. So, you know, we have big problems and, and I think that's, you know, psychedelics or you could say, you know, plant sacraments like ayahuasca and psilocybin and peyote can, can actually be helpful in um, giving people a different understanding of themselves in relationship to nature and the cosmos. And that can then lead to them acting differently in the world. Yeah, what interests me around this ayahuasca and other, primarily ayahuasca, I think, right now, because that's become the thing for a wide range of people who are not typically stoner culture people, people who are, don't really consider themselves part of the counterculture necessarily, but they still find themselves attracted to this as, as something that they need to do for themselves to improve themselves. That's unusual, isn't it? I mean, to find that it becomes something, is it a 1% thing? You know, do you feel like the, it's an elite group of people that have come to this realization that they need 
ayahuasca to help save their marriage or to, you know, the people thinking about it in all these terms, ways to sort of help them personally, not necessarily help the world or shift our thinking about ecology or environment. Right. Uh, there was a bunch of questions kind of mixed, <laughs> yeah, mixed, mixed up in there. Um, <laughs> Just pick one. and. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, in general, when it comes to, you know, uh, things like psychedelics and visionary plants uh, and entheogens, it tends to be more of an elite group um, that has the time and uh, interest. Because um, if you're just in like a survival paradigm, it's like you don't want to then also deal with all the f suppressed contents of your of your mind, you know. So it's either you know not always not always some people are like financially ahead of things, but people who are, you know, culturally, you know, or financially or socially, like you know, have reached a certain level of comfort where they can, uh, you know, feel safe and exploring their own consciousness to, to some degree. And yeah, I mean, people are doing it for all sorts of reasons. I mean, um, you know, months ago I was on like line at a store and the people in front of me were saying, yeah, like all my friends now, like if, they're, if, they're, if their art career isn't doing good, you know, they know that they go do ayahuasca and it makes their art a lot better. You know, I was like, thought that was really funny. So yeah, it has a lot of different uh, benefits for people. Sometimes the experiences are, are difficult, um, but generally people feel really wonderful after after doing it, at least, as particularly the first, you know, maybe five, ten times that you try it, has a really transformative uh, effect. The suffering of ayahuasca, which is partly what we're told, I haven't uh, tried it myself. I can tell. So. <laughs> How can you tell? I don't know. It's kind of weird. You get a sense of these things. It's kind of like Burning Man. Like certain people, like I, get, I wouldn't say you have not gone to Burning Man. Oh, no, I haven't. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, go for, keep going. It's just weird. It's like you get a sense. But you take an acid probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm old enough to have been, you know, around in those, those yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So Yeah, you just begin to get a sense. There's like, it like has a certain, uh, introduces a certain like frequency to people in a weird way. So do you, what would I benefit if I did take? ayahuasca what might i expect as I, of course you don't know me that well yeah, i don't know you that well i mean i mean i mean the, you know the fact is we're all only on this earth for a very short period of time and um you know our we've grown up in a skeptical or secular materialist scientific kind of paradigm where the general assumption is that like death is the end of any everything and their consciousness is only based in the brain and therefore there couldn't be any type of existence of a spirit or a soul or a sense of identity after death i, I feel that you know ayahuasca then also it's kind of constituent element dimethyltryptamine or dmt uh, which is also a chemical that we find in our brains and our spinal columns they, they have the capacity to open that question and you can have very visceral experiences for instance of encountering you know, the spirits of the dead, you know, your, your, you know, people in your life who've passed away or, um, you know, ha have a sense that there are these other um, realities of, of a spiritual or super sensible being that, you know, a lot of the different metaphysical and occult traditions and shamanic traditions actually, you know, talk about and say that's the case. So for me, it led to a shift in like a worldview from like a Freudian worldview to more of a Jungian worldview, really understanding that there's more to the nature of the psyche than the, the materialist perspective allows. And I think that's very important and very comforting because, yeah, I mean, you know, where death is a terrifying thing. I mean, you know, I, ayahuasca is sometimes called the rope of death, you know, and, and because it, what idea is that it, it brings us into the spirit world and gives us an experience that's similar 
uh, to that or or can, you know. Well, I always hear about people throwing up and, you know, sort of that seems to be part of the rite of passage and that makes people yeah. feel like that they're doing something. The purging with ayahuasca usually comes at a particular juncture in the ceremony. I mean, it can happen at different times. Sometimes people throw up right away, but, but oftentimes it does feel that it's like not just a physical thing, that it's connected to stuff that you're holding on to, thoughts that are kind of like preying on you. They don't maybe even know they're like weighing you down or whatever, like negative energies. And the purge kind of releases a lot of that. You, you Often people feel really, really amazing after it. But it's so funny. I have so many people who've never done ayahuasca because they're so scared of throwing up. And to me, actually, <laughs> the purge is like some of my best experiences in my life have been these purges, you know. Yeah, on ayahuasca yeah, yeah, or yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Particularly, <laughs> particularly ayahuasca. You really, you really toss your cookies on ayahuasca. I was also thinking about your, you know, your own journey to this place because you didn't start out that way, at least not when I first met you. You were editor of a literary magazine, right? And, you know, hanging out like the rest of us and not really thinking in these terms as far as I knew back then. What happened to get you motivated to explore this world? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a few different things. Well, first of all, I have a like a personal lineage connected to the Beat Generation. My mother was involved with Jack Kerouac when she was a kid. I grew up with Allen Ginsberg. You know, those, those guys definitely, you know, particularly Ginsberg and Burroughs, I mean, they tried ayahuasca and peyote and LSD and wrote about it and stuff like that. But the other thing was um, I was working in magazines in my late 20s. I think I first did an article for Esquire that was, you know, kind of about a subject seemingly kind of funny, which is the decline of the sperm count. The fact that we've lost, you know, men across the world have lost at least 50% of their sperm count over the last, like, half century. So that became the subject of an inquiry. And then I was, like, looking into... Um, how, you know, basically what we learned is when plastics and pesticides mimic hormones like estrogen in our system, and they've been uh, degrading our reproductive system. And that's why also uh, women get getting many more breast cancers, you know, and so on. So I realized that it was quite a serious subject. Um, and then I published the piece. And then I began to just start reading about the environmental situation. This was like in the 90s. And I realized that, um, you know, we were really in, in a much worse situation than people were talking about. And um, then I began to realize that um, when I looked at my own worldview, I was basically a nihilist. You know, I, I was a materialist. Like, 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 you know, I don't know what your belief structure is, but, you know, I assumed that, I assumed that death would be kaput, you know, that there's no more experience. So in a way, like, there was, like, no importance to anything. And I realized that that worldview of nihilism, which was kind of like the unspoken agreement in the, in the media and literary worlds and the art worlds, was leading us to this kind of, incapacity to think uh, sensibly about the future of the planet for ourselves and our you know children and future generations. So then I began to ask myself, did I really know for a fact that this scientific materialist worldview was the actual truth? Or, or was it possible that we had misunderstood something? And so then I remembered that I'd had these psychedelic experiences in college that were the, you know, had, had given me this strange feeling that there were other levels of consciousness or other possibilities that, that needed more exploration. And then I wrote a piece for uh, Vibe magazine on uh, Iboga, which is a West African psychedelic. Then I went to Ecuador and wrote a piece for Men's Journal on uh, Ayahuasca. And then as I had these experiences, they led to more and more kind of openings, like uh, uh, transpersonal experiences, psychic experiences, synchronicities. And over time, you know, and I was still a skeptic, so like breaking open the head and really follows me sort of treading softly and, and, and trying to figure this out, I, I, I ended up recognizing that these shamanic cultures actually had knowledge that we had lost. And that in itself is controversial. And, uh, you know, I remember 
that book was not exactly welcomed with open arms. That book didn't have a hard time. It was my next book that got kind of uh, uh, pooped on a bit by the establishment. Because you were too far out. I mean, people were thinking, and you even went on the Colbert show. I saw a clip of that. Did you feel like he was making fun of you or just did not really? It was a very interesting experience in that I thought he was going to ask me all these really tough questions, but uh, they'd, they'd warned me about some of them. But actually, when we got out there, we had a very friendly rapport and a very, yeah, it was a very interesting moment. I'm actually very sad that I haven't been able to get back on that show or others like them. Uh, but I think it was, yeah, that was one of the first times, you know, since the 60s that somebody had gone on mainstream television, you know, talking about, uh, you know, psychedelics in, in that way. But yeah. you feel like he was making fun of you? No, he wasn't. He did not make fun of me. I, it was a different kind of rapport. And the second book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. So once I understood that the uh, modern paradigm, the rational materialist paradigm that everybody's like stuck in was actually not true and um, that our knowledge was based on sand and there was actually all this other stuff that we really needed to, to think about, that led me to take uh, the knowledge of traditional cultures and indigenous uh, societies uh, around the world more seriously. And I found that a lot of them had an understanding of our time as a uh, time of tremendous transformation. Like the Hopi talk about this being the time, the shift between the fourth world and the fifth but world. It's 2012 specifically. Not, was... Well, I mean, so, you know, I called well, the book 2012. 2012 was the end of a long calendar of 5,125 years that for the classical Maya civilization was great importance. But I don't know if in retrospect it was a mistake or not, but by calling the book that year, I think it, it, it made people, after the fact, the book actually was a bestseller at that time, but it's since then people think that it was about something in the past, whereas actually I, I totally think that book is completely relevant right now. And to me, we're clearly undergoing a uh, shift, you know, which may ultimately, unfortunately, be more like a collapse. So that book was looking at the esoteric and metaphysical uh, aspects of this of this transformation that we're metamorphosis or whatever that we're going through. Then my next book, which just came out in 2017, How Soon Is Now, tried to provide a kind of blueprint or a practical model for how we could avoid driving ourselves to extinction by changing, redesigning our society uh, according to more holistic principles. Right, because people took that book to mean that the world was going to end in 2012, and since it didn't, then therefore nothing in there Well, that's just because they didn't actually sense. read the book. Right. So the book didn't say that. And then I made a documentary that came out in 2010 where we talked about like permaculture, um, kind of indigenous practices, local currencies, engines that run on water. You know, So it was really more like... The idea was that we could utilize this sort of marker of indigenous knowledge as an opportunity to have a dialogue as a society about our direction uh, and actually shift, you know, maybe into another direction. But not enough people were ready to have that dialogue. Right. Well, I I read, I saw that. Uh, It's actually quite good and holds up today, as you were saying. It really makes sense today and more probably because of the way the environment has collapsed and global warming and all yeah, of that has I've, become I've been more obvious. Yeah, which I've since, you know, a long time, since certainly since 2006. That was one of the main themes of the 2012 book. But uh, even with Breaking Open the Head, uh, as soon as I went down to the Amazon jungle and I saw the uh, way that our industrial, the, the oil companies were going into the jungle, they would, you know, millions of acres would disappear and they would cause these toxic spills and we wouldn't get enough oil, you know, from that to keep us going for like three days or something. And then this was happening like over and over again. And then the, the forests don't grow back, you know, once they're gone. So at that point I realized that we were kind of in like a suicide 
spiral, you know, in, in, in reality. And in that documentary, there's uh, like Sting. Yeah. It has a lot to say. It was a very moving section. I yeah. mean, he seemed like he was really talking from the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, what was that? How did that come about? Did, did you know that he was interested yeah, in the yeah, subject? I mean, uh, he reached out to me uh, through a friend, a mutual friend, after he read my first book, Breaking Open the Head, and he, he gave it out to a lot of his friends. But I've, I've had that happen a number of times where these sort of, you know, big public artists or influencers like Sting or Russell Brand or Ellen, Ellen Page read my work and then kind of like reach out to me. Yeah, just on a side note now while I'm thinking about it, because you mentioned about those artists like saying that their work would be improved by their ayahuasca. Have you seen any evidence of that influence in the art world at all? You know, so what I, I might used, that I look used like? to write about art a lot, and I literally stopped paying attention like a number of years ago. I just got so bored. But I'm, I have one friend, where's she from? Maybe Swiss, Katya Loher. I mean, she does art, which definitely has an influence of, you know, shamanism and psychedelic experience. But I, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not like an expert in that field anymore. The artist Swoon, do you know Swoon? Swoon, she, no. She has a show now at the Jeffrey Deitch Gallery on her Instagram. She talks about how she uses psychedelics in a therapeutic, psychoanalytical way with a psychotherapist just to help not to make more great art necessarily. Yeah. But just for herself, so I imagine that's somehow gets into her work as well. You might find that interesting. Yeah. Michael Pollan, you mentioned, which is he's wrote this book, How to Change Your Mind, which is uh, from everyone tells me is the thing that everybody talks about. If you go to San Francisco and then to the tech scene where people are microdosing and suddenly discovering psychedelics is something that could help them. How do you feel about that? Do you read that book or? Uh, I, I read some of it. I mean, to, you know, I, I, I mean, I'd say he's a very talented writer, and I'm happy that he was able to get the subjects, you know, out to a, to a more mainstream audience. I mean, personally, I prefer Breaking Open the Head. Thank I think you. it's actually a richer book, but um, you know, but but uh, he was the one who uh, came at the right moment to you know scoop up the cultural. Well, world. also had the right connections right and connections. was part of the whole like yeah. cabal of exactly. media, New York media world, exactly. and, uh, all of that. But at the same time, he. You had already explored drugs when you started your book, and he started from ground zero. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic, I and mean, what he did was great and, and courageous for him. I mean, I, you know, I think he could have done a few more uh, experiences. Like, I don't think he does ayahuasca or whatever, and he was very frightened by his um, experience with a substance called 5-MeO-DMT, uh, which is, you know, a very fascinating subject. Is also. that like that 10-minute Yeah, exactly, thing? Yeah. Where, like, the aliens talk to you and things like that? Uh, well, not really. There's two types of DMT. There's the NN DMT, which is one that Terrence McKenna wrote a lot about. And that one, you could have alien, you know, whatever that means, or you could really enter into, like, a alien reality, like a reality that feels, like, totally uh, different than this one, kind of awesome. And, and then the other one, 5-MeO, which is what he described, is more like a nirvana uh, experience. It's more like... Uh, feels like a direct confirmation of what Buddhism talks about when they talk about the void or nirvana, kind of like the the white light, that uh, the, the, the ecstasy that, that's, you know, infinite and eternal you know, or, or spaceless and timeless. So how do we get the, the Trump 33% or whoever, do you think they would benefit from trying some of these or people who aren't like the most obvious candidates? Isn't that part of the popularization of this? Is that part of the goal to... Not your goal particularly, but, you know, something, the inevitable 
consequence of what's going on today? That well, was... I think it would be great. I mean, I think there's a reason why we're seeing, like I mentioned, um, M- did I mention MDMA is being uh, looked at? I mean, they're, they were in phase, phase three FDA clinical trials. They fast-tracked it as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder because they're finding that it has like uh, 60% cure rate, something like that, with veterans who have treatment-averse forms of PTSD. A lot of them end up committing suicide, but they do three therapy-assisted sessions of MDMA, and they have no more PTSD symptoms. They're cured. And there's also a movie, a documentary you can watch called uh, From Shock to Awe, which is about a bunch of veterans from the Iraq War who work with an ayahuasca center in Florida. And similarly, they have like medicine cabinets full full of all these horrible pills that aren't helping them. They're able to like throw those pills away and actually just lead normal, healthy lives again. But does that make them, you know, better citizens or care more about the environment? The thing about it is that um, what's going to happen in the next decade is uh, a level of chaos that we've never seen before on this planet. And, um, you know, we're going to have environmental refugees. We just saw what happened in Malibu. Even, like, the wealthy people are not at all safe from what's going to happen. People are going to be stressed. They're going to be traumatized. And if psychedelics, you know, psychedelic therapies and treatments become available, you know, they really may be very helpful for for a lot of people who are not really going to know what to do with themselves and and a need to kind of, like, you know, rethink from the ground up what they thought was, was you know, going to be their lives. With regard to the veterans, I, from what I understand, they won't even let him use cannabis, you know, prescribe cannabis in the veterans' hospitals for veterans who have PTSD. So it's hard to imagine that, you know, I mean, on one hand, we see a lot of progress, but at the same time... Where do you see progress? <laughs> in legalization of cannabis okay, yeah, or so looking at... of cannabis, yeah. But also... Most lo- places, not so much progress right now, but... <laughs> well, looking at the... Uh, uh, psychedelics as well. Yeah. Uh, Johns Hopkins yeah. University right. now has uh, started this right. institute. That's like the only silver lining in like a libertarian uh, ethos, right? Because it's like a do you know let others do as they will kind of ethos in a way. But do you, so you're not you're not optimistic. You don't think those kind of changes help. So what? Oh will... yeah, no, they do think. I I, do, I think that legalization of cannabis is great, and I think legalization of psychedelics is great and necessary. Yeah. And but what would be the ultimate like result of that? In that movie that we talked about earlier, one of the feelings I got was that everyone that you spoke with really believes that taking these substances uh, really can make the better world. Right. Well, so as I said before, one of the problems we have right now is because most people are operating in a materialist and nihilist paradigm. They're not really um, kind of, they don't really have a sense of kind of like the distant future or like their responsibility for the earth or their... You know, um, you know, so having certain experiences can be very transformative and can actually change. Like I've seen people, you know, with a lot of wealth do ayahuasca and then they rethink how they're investing their wealth. They move it into more regenerative or sustainable uh, kind of projects. They don't want to just get a financial return anymore. People who are like CEOs of different, you know, companies may change jobs, do something that they think is more beneficial. So yeah, and on the deeper level, um, we would need like a real paradigm shift, like away from, you know, materialism. Because at the moment, you know, for over 150 years, our society has been selling everybody on this idea that, 
you know, g- getting famous, getting wealthy, having a lot of yachts, having big cars, having big houses. That's like success, you know, and, and you know, eating a lot of meat, you know. And, and we now know for, for an absolute fact that you can't have a planet of billions of people having big houses, eating a lot of meat, having yachts and so on. So, you know, we're, we need if we're, you know, and I, I'm not sure I actually at this point don't even think we're going to survive, to be honest, very long. But, but if we were going to, if that was going to be an option, we would need a really a transition in paradigm. And so you'd have to give people something else to be really excited about rather than just like having another big house or a yacht or, you know, whatever. Right, but the rich people don't seem to be the problem. They they are the 1%, so we need to influence the 99% well, who don't have the yachts, actually, who don't, the, the, rich people the ones are, who want that are, are, stuff. use up a lot of the planet's resources. And, and in a way, they're, they're the ones who uh, would have to step forward and, and kind of sacrifice a bit. But, but essentially, if we had... From my perspective, which is what I wrote about in uh, a few of the books, uh, we could see an emergent new paradigm that like quantum physics and Eastern mysticism basically are telling us the same thing. Uh, they're telling us that consciousness is actually the fundamental reality and that, and that uh, you know, it's, it's the observing uh, individual participant who causes like the wave to collapse in, into a particle. So it's consciousness actually is constructing what we experience as the material reality. Uh, not the other way around. So, I mean, that that you know that fits into mysticism. It fits into esoteric uh, religion and so on. So, so we could actually begin to have a new paradigm that uh, made people feel that there was you know more at stake you know, in terms of like uh, their connection to the earth, their connection to other people, and to you know the the, the cosmos, you know other dimensions to the super. But that happened in the sixties, right? It was like well, this it started to happen, explosion. but then it, then it didn't quite. There was a pushback from the mainstream society. There was still a lot of opportunity for people to succeed in these corporate structures. And, um, you know, that's kind of how we ended up where we are now. And what about microdosing? You, you know, my understanding of what's happening with that in Silicon Valley, let's say, is that people are using it as kind of a work drug. It's just yeah. like something that helps them work more. Yeah. Is that like a good use of that in terms of, you know, the spirituality uh, and the I'm, progress I'm, I'm, we're I'm looking for? crazy about it. I think what's been happening over the last decade is, uh, I mean, like, as psychedelics are being mainstreamed, they're being sort of domesticated. And so rather than it being about like deconditioning from social norms or, you know, having a revelatory visionary experience, it's more about like self-healing or, you know, increasing productivity or innovative thought. I mean, there is, I mean, like the uh, Imperial College in London has been doing um, a series of studies of brain scans of people on high-dose psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin. And it is quite remarkable because you can see how these substances, like they f- all these different areas of the brain that are normally dormant, light up, and they actually create new connections in between them. So if you think that you know innovative thought or creative problem-solving is based on the capacity to like make new connections, to see things from different perspectives, then it totally makes sense that psychedelics are could be powerful tools for problem-solving. Oh, no doubt. But how dependent should one get or on that experience to help you solve these problems or you know address some of the issues that you have? Is this something that you know, in the future would be like a weekly thing or monthly or yearly, or, or is it different for everyone? I, I Not that I you know the answer yeah, to all of these I don't, I don't really have an answer. But thing, I just you like, know, I mean, how I'm, is I'm, it for you if you're willing to talk? Uh, you know, is this something that you, is part of your regular life? No, you, I mean, I've actually really taken a, a step back. Um, and I kind of wanted to kind of deeply reground just in like normal consciousness for a while. 
Um, so, how's that working out? <laughs> it's great. I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, I've had so many of these psychedelic experiences that I that I don't. I, I know that it's there. I just I just don't necessarily need to like have the artificial um, experience right now. Yeah, and I feel that's probably true for a lot of the boomers who went through that. No, I think the boomers still need to do a lot more, particularly, <laughs> particularly ayahuasca. They should go and drink it in buckets. Why? What is it particularly they need? In retrospect, the baby boomers are going to be looked at as the greatest criminals in all world history because they knew starting in the 60s about the ecological and social problems we were facing. And they kind of, you know, they started this movement, kind of like Greta Thunberg is doing now. Then they kind of dropped it and they turned their backs. And within the last 30 years, you know, we've doubled the amount of CO2 emissions that, that, that are, you know, destroying the climate. The population has also skyrocketed, you know, I think maybe more than double. So, um, so do you feel the people are more powerful than the governments with regard to creating change of this nature? Well, I think we've missed, we missed a very crucial window of opportunity to redirect society onto a more regenerative path. And, and now it may be too late to, to avert, unfortunate, like really, really massive negative uh, consequences. So no political pr new president won't really make a difference? Well, I, mean, I, I would definitely think that the Green New Deal is, is worth a shot. I mean, one of the only things that could work would be, like, uh, at this point, we would need, like, you know, a world, this is what I wrote about in How Soon Is Now. Like, you know, we think that we can't make changes, you know, but actually when there's an emergency, when there's like a collectively perceived enemy, then, you know, we can actually rewrite the rules of our economic system as we want, and we can unleash productive capacities as we need to. Uh, so, you know, in the Second World War after Pearl Harbor, uh, the U.S. shifted all of its uh, industrial production to wartime needs, and they taxed the wealthy at like 94%. Everybody agreed that's what had to happen to fight the, the Nazis. That's, that's exactly what we need to do right now to deal with the, um, the multidimensional ecological crisis, which includes species extinction, climate change, um, ocean acidification, and, and right. so on. Right. So, uh, unfortunately, the scenario that I imagine is that it, it's too late, and then people realize it. So when, you know, the oceans are drowning people on the coasts, and fires are burning, and, you know, yeah, disasters everywhere, yeah. and then everyone's going to sort of wake up and go, oh, shit. It's the kind of problem that it's hard for people to really identify as being caused by X. You know, it's like a cause and effect kind of situation for people to say this is something that's happening in the sky and it's invisible is creating this real problem that we have to live with. We accept that invisible forces, you know, work in electricity and make our televisions function and our phone. I mean, I don't see why it's any different. Um, Man, I don't know. It's my theory. I'm yeah. not sure. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it holds um, up exactly. Well, it's, but you know, we're, we're, people are inherently lazy and... Um, they don't want to change their game. Because if you look at the 60s, you know, the big thing was the Vietnam War and people were getting drafted and, and people were young people were getting killed. So you were able to mobilize this great movement against the war and also brought along with it this whole counterculture to make those points. But, you know, there's no war. There's no, like, immediate threat to people that if, you know, you, if you go out the door you could, or if you turn 18, you're going to be drafted and you're going to suddenly going to find yourself in the jungle getting well, shot I mean, at. Yeah, actually, a number of analysts are now saying that, um, you know, large-scale droughts and food shortages are, uh, you know, potentially going to happen, you know, within three to five years. Um, you know, we're seeing the, um, you know, we're so used to just going to a restaurant or a store and there's the bread or there's whatever. But what happens when you go to the store and there's no bread? 
you know, I mean, we see what happens. You have revolutions and, yeah. you know, everyone goes berserk. And, you know, and, and we think that that you know, couldn't happen to us. But but actually, you know, if there's a massive drought and, you know, the, the, the wheat doesn't sprout for that year, it's not like, you know, you can then plant wheat like two months later. You've missed, you know, the whole season. And that is happening, in fact, in other parts of the world. I mean, Africa's had huge problems with water and yeah. drought. There's people, large mass immigrations from one location to another, except that's kind of Africa, so we don't, like, take it seriously as something that could happen here. And also, as you talk about the rich, I know um, that they're, like, doing all these crazy things to protect themselves, storehouse, warehousing, and, you know, putting... Right, but none of that's really going to be I know, but they think it, that's oh. going to save them, and somehow, um, you know, they're going to be immune from all of this which prevents, you know, the real application of solutions yeah. because those people could really help if they thought so, if they thought they needed to. Yeah. Well, we can all focus on what, what's the name of that woman with the big butt that you had in your cover? Kim Kardashian, yeah, man. Come on. Just... <laughs> well, I mean, you know, how, how, how do you feel as somebody who really, you know, you know, kind of in a way supported this kind of celebrity culture with its kind of like... Um, distraction, you know, machine that, like, you know, kept a lot of people uh, unable to, like, focus on anything of value, you know, while we had the time to do that. I mean, do you feel any personal responsibility? Um, no, not so much because uh, my roots were not in the celebrity culture. Yeah. That's not no, what... I know. You came from the counterculture. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's... And so what eventually... Yeah, things changed, obviously. It became a business and we had to do certain things to survive. Yeah. Everybody does. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know... Kind of the problem, though, no? Not really, because if... I mean, yes, but also if you have a business, you have support people, you right. have other considerations. Yeah, so that's, you, but that's exactly the problem, though, right? Because there's always... Um, or the Jean Renoir film, uh, everyone has their reasons, right? Like, yeah, well, that's the problem. Like, of course, you care for your people. The rules of the game? Rules of the game, exactly. You remember that film? Sure. That was a great Classic. Ma masterpiece, yeah. So... Yeah, no, it's like, it is what it is at this point. I mean, um, you know, it feels to me like it couldn't have gone anywhere else. I mean, yeah, and just tr tr Trump is like the perfect, you know, avatar for America at this point in time. You know? Yeah. Well, thank you, Daniel Pinchback. Is that it? Are we out of time? I have more things to say. Oh, God, really? <laughs> okay, what else? What else do you want to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say that in terms of uh, occultism, I'll, I'll end, end on this. It's very interesting with Trump because he actually grew up in the church of Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And um, in a way, you can look as, at Trump as the uh, you know, most successful application of magical thinking uh, on the planet right now. Because like, basically the idea with Norman Vincent Peale is if you want something, you know, never always reinforce what you want, never say anything negative. You know? So Trump, you know, whenever he talked about the presidency, he was like, if I ever run for president, I'm going to win. You know, he, he was always so... He's a kind of limited guy, obviously, in certain respects. But it does, it does kind of open the question of like, what could we actually all create if we had that kind of you know, certainty? Narcissism. <laughs> if we were all narcissists, what would we do? What would we <laughs> a world full of but what about you? What do you what, sociopathic what, before we get off, I'm just curious, what, what are you interested in right now? My podcast. I mean, <laughs> I feel like this whole uh, world of cannabis and counterculture psychedelics yeah. is really important and, and uh, sort of verging on the mainstream. And yeah. I always like to be there like when that is happening, the underground, and it's touching on so many cultural, social issues 
prohibition. Yeah. Oh, is cannabis justice. a big part of this uh, podcast? Well, yes, it is. I mean, okay, it's cool. sponsored I really by a cannabis that. company oh, nice. Which out one? of Vancouver oh, called cool. Burb. Oh, cool. And yeah, so it usually touches on cannabis at some point, but it's yeah. not only about cannabis, as you can see. I'm yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. I have my subjects that I like to talk about. Yeah. But I feel that this is a really critical moment because it is just like underground bubbling. I'm running into people who I would never expect to be trying psychedelics now that are like doing it. And so it just makes me curious more yeah, yeah, yeah. about what that's going to mean in the future. And like you, I'm, well, I'll come back. I'll bring some DMT. And we'll do like a uh, podcast. <laughs> plus Ten DMT. minutes. Ten crazy <laughs> minutes. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Totally really cool. great, to, great to see you, David. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs>